Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, I'm Tricia Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today's show is Five Rules for Tomorrow's Cities, Designed in an Age of Urban Migration, Demographic Change, and the Disappearing Middle Class published by Island Press in 2019 by Patrick Condon. Mr. Condon began his academic career in 1985 at the University of Minnesota before moving to the University of British Columbia in 1992. After acting as the Director of Landscape Architecture Program, he became the James Taylor Chair in Landscape and Livable Environments. In that capacity, he has worked to advance sustainable urban design in scores of jurisdictions in the U.S., Canada, and Australia. He was the founding chair of the new UBC Master of Urban Design program, where his teaching and research are now concentrated. Uh, Hi, Patrick. Uh, Delighted to have you on the show today. Hello, Tricia. Glad to be here. Uh, Can you tell the audience uh, any more about yourself and uh, and how did you, what was your motivation for putting this book together? Well, in terms of myself, uh, I was was born in the United States and practiced my profession first there as a city planner. And uh, while there, uh, decided early on in my career that I wanted to teach, so I decided to teach first in Minnesota, as you mentioned, and now in Vancouver. I, uh, I've always been focused on urban design in my professional work as a planner and always been interested in the sustainability side of urban design. So that has kind of guided my career up to this point. And after 30 years, well, not 30 years yet, 25-ish years in academia, uh, the the opportunity to write this book came along as a consequence of working with students in our urban design program. You know, my previous book, Seven Rules for Sustainable Communities, was basically about North American cities. and the opportunity to build them more sustainably, to create less greenhouse gases and more affordability and things of that nature. But when I started teaching in the urban design program here and our new program here, most of our students come from around the world. So it uh, encouraged me to expand my view beyond North American cities to global cities. And when I did that, I, I kind of realized that the issues that we're confronting here in North American cities are not unlike what the issues that people are confronting in global cities as well. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, which I found quite surprising, and a lot of the stresses uh, and dynamics of change that are occurring here in North America are also occurring throughout the world, South America, South Asia, Asia, Africa, and so forth. So that's basically a kind of core uh, uh, feature that unites the book, uh, and as you mentioned uh, in, in the title, there there are these three great waves of 
of change that we're really confronting, and that is the collapse of uh, birth rates globally, which mean that by somewhere around 2050, 2060, most of the world will have a stable or declining population. Uh, uh, Japan and Italy are already early people, early countries that are confronting that issue with severe consequences even today. Uh, one of the factors that that uh, made Italy so hard hit with the coronavirus was the fact that their their population is older on average than most other cities around the world, most other countries rather around the world. And the, this feature of declining population, quite surprisingly, may in fact be hitting the United States in not too long a time. Uh, the reasons for that are, are various, but the most important one seems to be uh, the way that uh, uh, women are choosing or not choosing, as the case may be, to have children under present circumstances. And that correlates with the degree to which populations throughout the world are moving from rural areas to urban areas. This is true not just in the United States and Canada, where we now have 80% of our people living in cities, but it's also true in Asia and South Asia, where they now have 50% of their people living in cities and increasing quite rapidly. South America already has 80% of their people in cities and their birth rates are surprisingly low. Their population will stabilize probably around the same time that uh, North American population stabilize. In fact, the Canadian population would be already declining if it were not for immigration. And that's partly true or largely true in the United States as well. So that's a big, big change. And that, that kind of ties into the third factor. Uh, you know, immigration is one, demographic change or collapsing birth rates is two. The third, the third one is related to those two, which is the disappearance of the middle class. You know, we all know that inequality is a huge issue here uh, in, uh, in, the, in North America and in the developed world. Well, it's also an increasingly important issue in the developing world as well. The way the global economy is working right now, a large share of the increases in gross world product around the world are going into the hands of the 1% people who own the corporations, stockholders, and so forth, and leaving behind wage earners. So, of course, that attaches to the other two phenomenon, because in order to have a job, you have to go to the city. Once you get to the city, you can't afford to live there because the cost of housing is so high. Uh, the struggle to find an affordable situation in life makes it that much less likely that you will You'll be able to, even if you desire to have a large family, it's unlikely you will be able to afford one. So kind of a long answer to your first question there, Tricia, but uh, these three factors, it seemed to me, were not really being addressed in planning and urban design. So this, this book is an attempt to uh, 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 address that lack, that gap in the information. Uh, yeah, perfect. Well, let's start with um, inter introduction. Uh, you say, how can designers of this generation first assimilate and then incorporate ongoing cultural, economic, and ecological changes, interconnected changes occurring worldwide? Uh, can you talk more about what's the big question and how do we do it? Well, the big question is, what does that mean for city design? And 
uh, in the beginning of the book, I, I kind of chart a pathway through what's happening throughout the world. And I, I use the model of informal urbanism versus formal urbanism. And largely in North America, we have formal urbanism because our, our cities are developing along a pathway where big in, big corporations and um, retirement funds, big financial instruments are brought to bear to create you know, a new downtown project or a new suburban project, and people move in very much later. That's that's especially true in China, where the government and uh, private corporations now are creating whole cities for, you know, 100,000, largely before people even move in, uh, uh, assembling unbelievably massive amounts of capital and talent to create brand new cities that are designed top down and people come into those cities much later. That's one form of uh, city building that's going on now, which I call, I, I use the, the, the name formal uh, urban development. An equal number though around the world are going into informal developments and those are completely different. Uh, that's when a family might move into the edge of a growing metropolitan area find a very small parcel of land in a in a community where people like themselves are building their own houses and very informally start to create a, a, an urban pattern and an urban form and they, they set to work creating their own jobs and their own lifestyles in those locations. So South American favela are, are very obvious examples of that second uh, that second type of informality. And, and, and it's important to point out that uh, even in formal uh, urban development like we see in the United States, we see elements of informality. For example, here in Vancouver, where I live, we have a very formal city, like almost all North American cities. You know, it's developed, uh, you know, large chunks at a time. People move in later. But one of the informal features of our city is what we used to call in, we, we used to call illegal secondary suites. So most of the bungalow type houses have in time incorporated in an informal way and in fact in an illegal way uh, additional housing units. And interestingly, if it were not for those 30,000 additional housing units that are all rental units here in our city, we would have a, a very severe housing crisis. So there are elements of informality in formal communities as well as obviously formal, formal strategies and in uh, largely informal South American communities like uh, transportation systems and so forth would be formal. So for urban designers, I think it's really important to understand these two systems and how you could work within them and what they mean in terms of individual opportunity, entrepreneurial opportunities for you, whereas formal communities very often foreclose the opportunity for small-scale inf informal entrepreneurial activities, informal communities make that very easy. And the challenge for urban designers would be to understand the value of informality, even in the context of formality. Oh, yeah, because, yeah, we see that uh, probably nationwide uh, illegal rentals or people doing secondary units everywhere in response to um, – uh, yeah, affordable housing. Um, did you find that across the world or just in North America or, or where else did you find that? Uh, the in, our, our short answer to your question, around the world that's occurring. 
Uh, it occurs more in places in cities like South Asia, you know, Mumbai and uh, South America, where they have vast areas of informal settlements, which end up being quite efficient in terms of the the cost of building new housing units, also the resilience of those units in terms of being adaptable for alternative uses uh, in South American favela, favela. It's very it's very common to have a building that starts off as a one-story residential structure, maybe only 100 square feet footprint, one or 200 square feet footprint. Uh, that's the first stage. But 30 years later, you come back to the same place in that Suddenly it has five stories above it. The bottom two stories might be a small factory with res- where, the, where the workers in that factory, factory or the, the family that owns that factory live in the top three floors with a garden on the roof. So it's, it's quite a resilient, uh, it, uh, the informal form is inherently very, very resilient. Uh, and uh, it, I think it behooves urban designers and planners to really recognize the value of that informality and how there's a, there's a link between affordability and urban resilience and uh, entrepreneurial opportunity that informality brings with it. So uh, how does that tie into what are your, your I like how you, you laid out the book. I'll tell the, the audience as they can't see it. You've, you've got it very uh, uh, laid out very for a class, I guess. So that's what you wrote it for us for your class to uh, study. Yeah, I laid it out. I was thinking of them, uh, as it says in the book, uh, my students and any students in urban design or planning are are at the beginning of a 40-year career. You know, they'll work for 40 years, and if they're lucky, they'll retire at the end of that time. So if you look at that 40-year period, it's the frame within which we have to solve, most importantly, the uh, the issue of climate change. And cities contribute 80% of the greenhouse gases that are causing climate change. So this is obviously a role for urban designers to play in that. But also during that same period, these three waves that I mentioned earlier are going to come to their own fruition roughly about the time 2050, 2060, where we have to have solved the climate change problem. If we can't solve that one, then their future is, is very grim. So is the future of our children and grandchildren. So let's hope that there's, there is a solution to that one. And certainly urban designers and planners will have very much to do on that one. But the corollary with that is that's also the period where family sizes are shrinking so we can look forward to a stable population at the same time, such that the work that is done by planners and urban designers during this 40 years, in effect, establishes the city that in in many ways will be finished by 2050 and 2060. If you have a stable population, it's unlikely you'll need to change it. The the dramatic ways we have become accustomed to changing our cities currently. Our our background assumption has always been during my, my lifetime, of course, Tricia, that you know, cities are going to just keep growing. We're going to need new highways. We're going to need new transit systems. We're going to need new urban districts. By 2060, that's for, for the bulk of the world, that's no longer going to be true. It's going to be a challenge of maintaining existing cities, uh, assuming we survive the climate change uh, uh, challenges. It's going to be a question of maintaining the thing that we've built between now and 2060. So the point of the book is to 
to really say to these people, here's here are these trends, and you have 40 years of your own professional career to work on them. And at the end of the at the end of your career, I hope you can look back with satisfaction at the contribution that you've been able to make during this critical period, because this is probably the most critical period in city building in history. Unchallengeably, that that is indubitably the case. So that was what I was addressing. So it, it's kind of it speaks to my students, but I think it's I hope it speaks to a larger audience as well. People who also understand that this is an important period in history and we really have to get it right. So, well, in chapter two, I'll just go down the line. You have urban design responses um, for best practices um, in your research. What are the best urban design responses that we could start now? Uh, well, that kind of gets into the uh, into the, the core of the book, which is the five rules, Tricia. Uh, as a kind of a preface, uh, the uh, best practice now is to understand that this, the way we've assumed we will be building cities is no longer true. You know, we've assumed that we're going to be building cities for a middle class, uh, you know, in condominiums or in subdivisions, whatever, uh, driving a car out to the suburban office parks. And that world is really rapidly disappearing and being replaced by a, by a world where the middle class is under increasing stress. Uh, jobs are not for life. They're very uh, fugitive. You may have 10 or 12 jobs uh, during your life. Uh, the gig economy is exploding, which might be fun for some people, but it's very insecure in terms of its financial stability and so forth. And, and that's that's already uh, being uh, made manifest in changed, changing cities. If you really look carefully, you can see the expression of those changes already. So the, the, the basic fundamental rule is to be aware of these three waves. And then after that, the five rules do hook back into that. They've, you know, I've been at this for 30, 30, over 30 years now. So I hope I, I have something, you know, worthy to say about all this. And I took some, I took a lot of time to try to think what would be the most essential uh, strategies or best practices in the words you used I use the word rules because they're commonplace, but they really represent principles for sustainable urban design under these circumstances. So well, go ahead. Let's start with rule. Let's start with rule number one. So what's okay. rule number one and uh, what's the city as a system? Yeah. So rule number one is the city, see the city as systems. And this, this has to do with a diagnosis, not just mine, but, many other thinkers in my field, that the, many of the major mistakes we make in urban design is to see uh, cities as mechanical systems. And we t tend to oversimplify uh, the question of uh, uh, problem definition. So, you know, in cities, uh, transportation planners will see their problem as a, a problem of going from point A to point B. And uh, housing affordability, people would see a problem of housing, the solution to a housing affordability problem being a housing project. And the way we build cities is not to see those things as inherently linked together as a system, that the system of, as a kind of everyday example, the system of transportation and movement 
and the system of dwellings and how they are located are obviously a linked system. The dwelling is one end of your day, the work site is the other end of your day, and they're linked together by a, trans a movement system. All those three systems, work, uh, movement, and home, operate within the within the milieu or the context of ecological systems. So that that lesson tries to bring to the foreground in ways that are easily understand understandable. I know it seems rather esoteric in the way I'm describing it, but I hope the book makes it a lot less esoteric. Uh, that that way of uh, looking at city systems for planners and designers and citizens who are interested in these things allows them to see those connections, those inherently organic connections between the, the systems of the city and to make more intelligent choices. Uh, what's an example of how that applies? Well, in urban design, a sort of obvious example is downtown urban renewal tended to be a disaster in most places where it was uh, attempted because they would sweep aside the a very large section of a city imposed an idealistic design that was frozen in time and was unable to adapt to changing circumstances and very quickly within 10 or 20 years became dated. In my mind, I'm thinking of Boston's government center where they, uh, where they swept aside a beautiful part of the city called Scully Square and uh, a million little tiny buildings, very resilient, a lot of entrepreneurial like opportunities to put up these massive government buildings. And it's just, it's probably the most unpleasant part of the city of Boston to this day. So it's, it's, a, it's a rule that encourages our, our planning officials and our elected officials and designers to, to think more, to look more deeply into the systems of the city, to have a better understanding of how intimate and intricate they are. And of course, in that, in that rule, I, I very much uh, uh, harken back to the work of Jane Jacobs, who in the 1960s was the first articulator in her wonderful book called the, the Life and Death of Great American Cities to kind of put her finger on this problem. And I'm updating that, her insights really, and looking around the world at how, the, how her insights and the insights of other uh, others of a similar mind uh, can be seen in other parts of the world as well. So that's the one on systems design. Okay. I can go on. Uh, we'll go to rule number two. <laughs> okay, Trisha, uh, rule number two, <laughs> also a little bit esoteric, I suppose, but it's very much related to the first one. It's, it's an encouragement, really, and an investigation of how cities really are uh, patterns that uh, – the thinking around patterns is more is more really frankly more interesting than it sounds because patterns become the 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 built expressions of systems of the cities so if you look at other cities around the world most of them have characteristic patterns and in the interest of time i'll i'll just give you one broad example of that you know, New York City's pattern of the uh, 200 by 600 foot block that is extruded across the entire uh, length of Manhattan is a very classic example of city pattern, which is interesting because you would think it would be boring, 
But Manhattan, as everybody well knows, is anything but boring because that pattern framework is uh, robust enough to hold together in in a in a strong figural entity a, a city where there are literally tens of thousands of individual moves attached to that very uniform pattern and by uniform by those moves of course I'm 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 talking about mostly buildings tens of thousands of buildings sometimes they're parks sometimes they're urban squares like Times Square but largely it's the grid in relationship to those disparate buildings which which brings into focus what it means to be in Manhattan unmistakable and you wouldn't mix yourself up with any other city. So it's important to understand the power of those patterns and, and that even simple patterns can be very powerful. Things that might seem boring actually are not. The last thing I'll say to that in terms of the patterns, some patterns allow you to do many, many things. Some don't. So as I've described, Manhattan allows you to do many, many, many things because it's a, it's a consistent block size, which results in a consistent parcel size, which results in time in a whole diversity of buildings that fit into these parcels and change over the decades from one building to the next. But some master plan communities, and again, I mentioned it before, so maybe I'll mention it again, uh, places like Government Center in Boston, close to where I grew up, don't have that same uh, power because they are simple-minded, simple-minded in a way, really, in thinking that the, the, the design problem is really just to plunk down a whole bunch of different massive buildings and you're done forever. That pattern, that's a situation where there actually is not a pattern. There's just a, uh, a dumping ground for a bunch of buildings. So that, that's the second rule is the pattern is more important than buildings. Oh, so that's where I guess architects, landscape architects, and urban designers all like collaborate and come together, like what you're talking about. Yeah, well, yeah, for sure. I think that the 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 base the base datum for city building is very important, more important than the buildings that you put on it. So ecological systems and uh, movement systems, which essentially this is the ground and the ecology of the ground and the surrounding hydrological functions and all those things, which I touch on in the next chapter for sure, superimposed with the movement pattern and the allocation of parcels for human use uh, are more important. That Those two moves are together more important than the buildings that end up going into those Places because if you do it right, you can expect the buildings to change a lot over time. Because you know one of your objectives is resiliency in urban design. So, so if you can think of a pattern and ecological structure that allows the buildings to come in and change over time, typically on a small parcel uh, in in relatively small blocks, it seems uh, the the evidence suggests that's the most resilient form then you've done a good service to the city. And it also takes a little bit of humility on the part of designers to realize that the most important thing they can do is basically initiate a city building process and let other people complete it. Oh, kind of like uh, even all the medieval buildings in in Europe, they kind of start with one generation and, and maybe one or two later. 
Yeah, I think that's really what you have to do. And again, if we're thinking about the city over the next 40 years being the city that lasts forever, uh, lasting forever in one sense, but there certainly will be a lot of changes over the next number of hundreds of years should our culture survive that long. So you, you need to think ahead, uh, ironically, I suppose, to a city that in terms of its total population may not grow, but certainly the buildings are going to have to adapt and change to a variety of circumstances, or I should say whatever is on that particular parcel, likely a building, but a building might be replaced on that parcel or the building might be changed on that parcel uh, over the course of uh, many hundreds of years. Yes, exactly like a medieval situation where that's exactly your invoking of that precedent is perfectly accurate because that's how they were built and how they continue to operate. Okay. Well, now let's go on to rule number three. Uh, I think that goes into more of the climate. It's uh, climate change. Uh, apply lighter, greener, smarter, faster, maybe infrastructure. How do we do it? Might be faster, but it's the, the key thing here is it's lighter, greener, cheaper, smarter infrastructure, which is as opposed to, heavy, gray, expensive, stupid infrastructure, which is what we do now. You know, in North America, particularly in the last 40 years, we've basically quadrupled the cost per capita of our infrastructure. And by infrastructure, I mean pavement, curbs, uh, storm drain inlets, wires, pipes, all that kind of stuff. And our engineering standards have gone completely over the top. And it does pertain to... uh, the three-wave situation, because unfortunately the taxpayer is being burdened with uh, picking up the costs of maintaining that overbuilt, largely suburban infrastructure in the case of uh, the American landscape, urban landscape. The cost of that is becoming enormous. So the chapter really looks at uh, a kind of an unbuilding strategy that is starting to occur where One classic example of an unbuilding strategy is when you take a freeway down, as they've done in a couple of places like Milwaukee, for example, San Francisco's Embarcadero freeway after the earthquake, Portland's uh, uh, Riverside Freeway, which is now a park, uh, places where you really have overbuilt the infrastructure, uh, have it taken down, and they become very important places. Uh, Seoul, Korea is another current classic example where they've taken down a freeway and they've revealed uh, a stream that was hidden from view for most of the 20th century. Uh, That's at one end of the scale of green infrastructure. At the other end of the scale of green infrastructure is is the very modest moves like having streets that have no curbing. So the water that goes off off of a paved surface can go into a a grassy surface, surface, thereby to go into the soil, feeding the roots of the of the trees and so forth, and keeping pollution away from the water systems. So the essence of this is to is to spend less money, not more, to downsize your infrastructure. As you downsize that infrastructure, the ecological impact of that infrastructure is reduced, and the taxpayer saves money. So in that chapter, I kind of uh, look at uh, some of the economic factors of that. For example, Stockton, California is a classic example of a city that kind of went bankrupt. It bankrupted itself because of its overblown infrastructure and ended up, uh, you know, having 
having tremendous uh, difficulty getting getting out of the hole as a case study of how cities go wrong by letting their engineering community predetermine what their infrastructure ought to be. It's part of the whole problem of, of suburban sprawl in, uh, in the, the formal communities, the suburban sprawl communities of most North American cities, which cover more than 70% of the land, urban landscape now. Uh, but it also has application in other parts of the world as well. That if we want to live lighter on the planet, we really need a way to figure out ecological infrastructure systems that are not only have less impact on the planet, but are also cheaper to build and maintain. Again, because we're looking at the long run here, the long run being potentially centuries uh, into the future. Well, you know, I was thinking about that. Uh, there's a professor at uh, my local university, and, um, you know, one of the uh, arguments that's kind of hard, or maybe you can address this, you know, he built a, a house that had uh, recirculating gray water um, and a small catchment system because it does, we do have a, a wet and dry season here. Um, and it was hard to kind of convince people just to, you know, over the long run, it'll pay for itself. But um, in the short term, we need to make the investment. So, uh, how do you address that, or or talk? Do you talk about that? Yeah, I talk about that. I'm I'm very interested in uh, the the technology of distributed systems, and I think we're kind of at unfortunate impasse here, where we have a lot of attention sort of at the building scale. You know, in the example that you cite, you know, one building that that takes that goes off the grid. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have uh, much good work being done at the district scale or at the neighborhood scale. And the science and the evidence suggests that if you were if you were able to do things like that at the district or neighborhood scale, it would be even more efficient. Storm drainage is a kind of classic example. If you do a district scale storm drainage system where you will, and I've done a lot of work on this one over the years. If you do a, a, a district scale storm drainage system where most of the water goes into the soil in the roadside verges and in the park edges and as well as in the yards and so forth that allows uh that allows you to have basically zero impact on receiving systems and that kind of that kind of situation can be expanded to to deal with gray water assuming that we have eventually someday get a double pipe system in in our in our in our residential uh, vocabulary, which would be a very nice thing to start with, so that that same street infrastructure could start to deal with gray, wa- gray water very efficiently through infiltration basins and stuff like that, that wouldn't add a lot to cost. And in fact, we've done the cost analysis on some of these systems that suggest, again, it, it comes down to simple things like get rid of storm drain basins, get rid of curbs. If you get rid of the cost of that heavy pipe infrastructure, that frees up money that you can use in other ways, more green infrastructure ways at the district scale, and then and then ultimately at the watershed scale, uh, to uh, to to mitigate the impacts of our of our of our urban development on receiving uh, ecological systems and and along the way unbuild our gray expensive infrastructure so that as we have to replace this infrastructure, which most people don't realize there's kind of an 80 year period on all infrastructure, but basically you have to rebuild every street that there is every, every 80 to hundred years. So if you took that rebuilding opportunity to, to green your infrastructure, you could both save money and reduce ecological consequences, uh, 
of your of your city design, and and it will cost the taxpayer less. Okay, that sounds good. So how does that then? We're going to rule number four, and I think this goes maybe to more demographics. And you're talking about strengthening social uh, resilience through affordable housing design. Affordable housing, big big thing right now. Um, how do you address that in your book? Uh, basically, two ways. That's maybe the most important chapter of the book under present circumstances. Uh, and uh, t- basically two ways. Uh, of course, the book goes into greater detail, but the kind of elevator pitch on that chapter is the two ways are, are if you look at the city, let's take let's take the American city as an example. Seventy to eighty percent of the footprint of it is post World War II. Most people call it suburban sprawl. Unfortunately, that's for better or worse, that's the city we're going to have to deal with. And as population numbers slow, it's going to become important to refit that landscape for a new demographic. And that new demographic has less money, has smaller families, uh, and has a different job circumstance than the than the families for which that landscape was originally built in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. So there's a lot in the book about how you might go into suburban landscapes and uh, retrofit something at the end of a cul-de-sac for a multiple family unit, a, a strategy that I call hiving, as in beehive, go into the structure and change the existing structure on the parcel, potentially add add on to it so that it, it can be it can be in many circumstances more than one dwelling unit on the same parcel in different separate buildings or in the same building in a kind of revived con- uh, a concept of like the fourplex or the far the fiveplex that's that's one side to rest- to rebuild and reinvigorate our suburban landscapes for this new demographic and there could be a lot of benefits to that because uh, you could repopulate those places that are becoming depopulated. You could fill the schools again, which are starting to empty as the baby boomers age in place and their kids are all gone. There's a a demographic connection to all this too. Uh, The second major aspect of this, and there's, there's more that's discussed in there, but it's the example that starts from looking at, well, it starts from the, it starts from a conclusion that inequality is so severe now and so little money is going into the pockets of wage earners. And our current coronavirus problem really makes this incredibly obvious that most Americans, for example, have so little additional cash that any disruption in their um, pay sends their their life into a spiral of having to take their Chevy out to the food bank. You know, it just collapses completely. And, and a big repercussion of that constraint on the middle class now is that the big the big ticket item that they're not able to afford is housing. So in addition to this hiving idea, there are a number of other ideas. The most important of them is that we really need to do something about uh, the way global investment is increasing the value of urban land so much that the middle class can no longer afford her to buy into a piece of it. So cutting it up into smaller pieces as the, the hiving strategy is one part of that. But the other part of that is that the public sector needs to get back in the game of supporting 
housing. So I, I have a I have a number of pages that talks about the experience of Vienna over the course of the 20th century, who were able to do that and do that very, very well with brilliant architecture, uh, wonderful projects, such that 55 to 60% of the people who live in Vienna now live in non-market housing. And the other benefit of that is because the non-market housing sector was so large, it tended to compete against the market housing sector in such a way that even if you buy a market dwelling unit, in the city of Vienna, it's going to cost you less than half the cost of a similar market-priced dwelling in the city of Paris, an equivalent an equivalent city in a European context. So there's a kind of policy side, there's an economic side, and there's an urban design side to the what I'm offering in terms of my experience and my research about what we might do to to solve this most important pressure on our on our millennials in the middle class who are struggling to obtain housing. Oh, yes. I love that Vienna example. I have been to Vienna. It's just stunningly beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's amazing. And yeah, even at our ASLA conference in Los Angeles a couple years ago, there was a gentleman, landscape architect from there, and talking about how, um, yeah, they, they made beautiful affordable housing. It wasn't... Uh, you know, it, it didn't look ugly or anything. And he showed examples. It's like, yeah, I didn't even know there was affordable housing in Vienna. It, you can't tell. Yeah. I mean, I think there's really an opportunity for a, a revival of that. They have a very great model. All the housing is done by uh, housing corporate, nonprofit housing corporations who compete with each other for available parcels in the city. So how they do it there, why the housing looks so great is they have a, uh, uh, a process. It's essentially a, a design competition where a housing corporation will line up an architect and a developer and a bank. You know, there'll be a team as well as some residents who are ready to move in and they have a lifestyle. Uh, some of them specialize in, for art communities. Others are for, you know, vegetarians. There's all kinds of things going on in Vienna. Anyway, they, they will come in with their, with their team, with a, with a, preliminary concept design there might be 20 teams that will compete for this next opportunity and then a neighbor a citywide group of citizens will select it so it's just like a design competition selecting the best proposal that has the best design for the best money with the best social outcomes uh for the best part of the city uh you know it it works way better than you know in North America, we have a, 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 a very difficult situation where people hear the word public housing and they go, oh, who would want to live there? And that's because our public housing in North America was done intentionally to be ugly because we didn't want to reward the poor. You know, so we did things like there's no decorations on the buildings and it's just it, 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 it's an, literally an, an impoverished housing strategy, which has made it difficult to sell now uh, uh, non-market housing politically in the United States and even in Canada to some extent. But now the situation is politically very different. The stresses for the people who need housing are not just the poor. The people who can't get housing are not just the poor in the United States, for example. 
It's right up to the middle class. It's right up to the 50 and 60 percentiles in terms of income can't afford even to the 70th percentile can't afford a decent place to live. So it's not we're not talking about housing just for the poor and and engendering those problems. Well, they're the undeserving poor. It's like basically our sons and daughters. Who, it's everybody. It's it's the majority of people in our country in the our countries who can't afford housing. So it behooves us to really give it to elevate its status in non the, the status of non market housing in the way that Vienna so successfully did in the past. And I think it really comes down to design in many ways. You know, we that's what's so good about the Vienna example is that the designs are so superior. Oh. Yeah, it's just, like I said, I had no clue until he was talking about it, that it was affordable housing because, yeah, the association here in the United States is completely different. Totally. Um, totally. Uh, so let's go on to uh, rule number five, adapt and shifts in jobs, retail, and wages. Uh, tell us more about that. Well, I think uh, your listeners are going to be more than familiar with this one. Those who have to work for a living, which is basically everybody. Uh the the way that that shift in jobs is impacting city design, the most obvious example is, uh, you know, gig, the gig economy and places like WeWork, which is having its own financial troubles right now. But it, that's one of a number of corporations that is catering to people who are basically doing their own thing. They are entrepreneurs. They are selling graphic services. They are selling catering. They're selling a whole bunch of stuff. So the millennial generation is seeing great expansion in entrepreneurial type activities, very small corporate entities of one person, four people, six people working together in kind of a collaboration that they don't really often expect to last a lifetime because they hop from one entrepreneurial activity to another. So the city design is starting to reflect that already. And urban designers and and uh, planners, as well as architects and other city building other city builders, it behooves them to really recognize that you have to build in that kind of informality and resilience to a very changing work landscape. And for most of those jobs, there's really no reason to separate them from housing, because you know back when I was a kid, it was all we had a much more robust industrial sector in our cities in North America. There were factories where the smoke was coming out and a chemical smell and all that stuff. Increasingly, that's no longer the case in the United States economy. Most of what happens in the United States economy is value add. Just one obvious example is the iPhone that's made in in China in a a massive plant. Uh, I think Apple pays, last time I looked at it, something like $60 $60 for the iPhone, which ends up being sold for $80 to $800 to $1,200 when it, finally, when it finally gets to the store and it's beautiful box. And, you know, the person who sells it and the technician who can who can uh, take care of it and the, the advertiser who do all that, those wonderful, elegant advertising, that's where all the rest of that money goes. So the U.S. economy now, for better or worse, is kind of a value-added and a service economy. And given that, those kinds of activities, I wouldn't mind having any of those next door to my house, for goodness sakes. So our extreme 
zoning regulations, which came out of the 1920s in the United States, are no longer really viable given our new jobs landscape. So that's what that chapter is all about, is, is reminding people that you really need to build that into our new our new communities in ways that informal communities throughout the, the world in Mumbai and South America have kind of done automatically and informally. But our formal structures, our planning structures in, the, in our more formal economies, our so-called advanced economies, tend to inhibit and interrupt that. We should get rid of that impediment. So to conclude, can you give me um, one of your favorite case studies that's successful in applying these rules? Well, uh, the one I want to talk about is uh, Mendoza, Argentina, which is very successful in uh, the green infrastructure one. So it, it was a, I was researching what to talk about in that chapter, and I came across this project while doing it that I hadn't heard of in my 30, 35 years of experience in this stuff. So it was surprising to me that I hadn't heard of this wonderful, elegant example. But it sits at the foot of the Andes on the eastern slope of the Andes in Argentina in a desert landscape. But it's fed by uh, – but fortunately for it, it has uh, the snow melt from the Andes up above sending a constant stream of, of potable water th- through the city. And even pre-European contact, the, uh, the Aboriginal peoples in that landscape had channelized – and use that water for agriculture when it hit the plain below the mountains. And in time, there's a it's a it's a more interesting story than I have time to tell. But in time, Europeans, uh, when they built their newer cities in that location, uh, were were smart enough to incorporate that system into their street network. So every day, water water comes down the, the curbside channels and waters these trees in this desert landscape. And after 200 years, these trees are massive. The urban forest is just unbelievable. So the storm drain system, which drains the city, is also the same system that irrigates the urban forest and makes this city 20 to 30 degrees cooler during the the heat of their very intense summer than the nearby cities that don't have that, that same kind of uh, green infrastructure network. I, I find that one very inspirational in terms of what we might, as a group, be able to do over the course of the next twenty and thirty or a hundred years as we rebuild our, our our gray infrastructure and and make it more green and more affordable. Well, I think so. I mean, we'll 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 think positive and because uh, there's. A lot of books I've been uh, interviewing people like books like this and similar other ones talking about, you know, the research is already there. We just have to do it. Right. Right. Um, Well, you know, Patrick, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been very insightful and I I really enjoyed uh, reading your book. Um, And I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, Can you tell the audience uh, what are some fun projects you're working on now? Well, it's not. Uh, I wouldn't call it fun. I think the project we're all working on is basically what, how to, what, what do we do now that we live in a world where nature has basically said enough is enough. Uh, I'm speaking obviously of COVID-19 and what kind of what kind of urban design is going to come out of that. 
So I had the, you know, I guess the misfortune of dropping my book into the into the cultural landscape mid-January. And in that book, there's not a word about COVID-19 or plagues or anything else. Uh, I think a lot of what I've said about the five rules really has an application. Uh, some of the underlying thinking in that book really does relate to the new world we need to uh, start to build as a consequence of this changed circumstance. I'll only give one example because I know we're running out of time. One example is in most, in, in, in my situation here in Vancouver, increasingly uh, inequity is being demonstrated in a situation where our service workers and our first responders need to live further and further away from where they're needed to do their jobs. And the reason for that is they can't afford to live close to where their jobs are. So it does harken back to this question of affordable housing and what is a, not just an equitable structure for housing and transportation in an urban region, but also what is a safe structure? What is a healthy structure? Obviously, that implies getting our first responders and our service workers, people like grocery clerks, are, are suffering badly during this because they're essential workers and uh, they're very much exposed to the disease, and their pay is 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 terrible. They're not they're not paid very well at all. So, unless we can triple their pay scale, I think that the society has an obligation to make sure that they're well housed at the very least. That's just one example of a kind of urban design response to the COVID nineteen catastrophe we find ourselves in. Hopefully, hopefully a hopeful one. You know, I don't want to end on a depressing note. Could be a more equitable city, a more sustainable city where we have to travel less. The neighborhoods could be a lot nicer, much more mixed in terms of income and ethnic groups and so forth, old with young and so forth. Those are the implications of what I'm talking about. So I look forward to this new city being much potentially much nicer than the ones we have right now. Well, I think that's true. You know, maybe this is a good wake-up call, and we just need to not hit that snooze button on the alarm because it's not going to kick down the road anymore. Yeah, I know. Um, well, again, Patrick, thank you so much for being here on the show today. It's It's been delightful, and uh, I want to let our audience know the book is Five Rules for Tomorrow's Cities, Design in an Age of Urban Migration, Demographic Change, and the Disappearing Middle Class uh, by Patrick Condon published by Island Press in 2019. And again, I'm Trisha Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. <laughs>